Each of us has had a very personal experience of the church during the COVID-19 pandemic. But the church's actual role on the ground varies greatly depending on where in the world your feet are standing. No one is better placed to offer a broader perspective on all this than John Allen, renowned reporter and commentator on all things Catholic. John is the founder and editor of Crux, an independent online news outlet reporting on the Catholic Church, which can be accessed at www.crooksnow.com. His work has appeared in many news outlets, and he is the author of numerous books, including The Catholic Church, What Everyone Needs to Know, Oxford 2014, and A People of Hope, The Challenges Facing the Catholic Church and the Faith That Can Save It, Image 2013, which he co-authored with Cardinal Timothy Dolan. John, will you unmute and turn your video on? Hi there, am, am I being heard and seen by everyone? Yes, you are. Excellent, okay, good. Uh, all right, uh, well, as Tim said, my plan is to talk for roughly 20 minutes to a half hour. I wanna leave plenty of time for conversation. I also want to note uh, that my day job, basically, is I am what the Italians call a Vaticanista, which means that I cover this 108-acre island of ecclesiastical space here in the heart of urban Rome we call the Vatican. Uh, and so, uh, although I am, of course, going to be talking about COVID and in the church's response to it, if, if anyone has questions about anything else uh, involving the Vatican or the global church, I am very happy to, to engage them when the time comes. <clears throat> All right, uh, in terms of COVID and the church, uh, what I thought is that I would organize my thoughts tonight in terms of three broad sort of categories of, of concerns. Uh, the first will be the church-state tensions and religious freedom issues posed by COVID-19 and its implications. Uh, the second would be the e economic, social, and political fallout uh, of COVID and the church's response. Uh, and the third would be pastoral care in the COVID era. And, and in each case, uh, I wanna use as a point of departure uh, a kind of key papal moment that I think summarizes the challenges and the tensions that the church faces. <clears throat> and as a kind of preview of com coming attractions, those three key dates are April 28th, October 3rd, March 27th, all 2020. Uh, and if you don't know instinctively what those three dates represent, I promise you we will unpack them as we go along. Uh, so let us begin with the church state and religious freedom dimension uh, of the COVID crisis. And, and this is of course a very apposite moment to be talking about all of this because we're really right now watching the second wave of the COVID crisis crest across the world. The first came in the spring when it hit first Europe and then later the United States. 
Uh, and the second uh, is, uh, is cresting right now. Yesterday, as I'm sure you know, the United States set an all-time record with 184,000 new COVID infections. Uh, and in, in Europe, the situation is much the same. The country that I live in, Italy, I am based in Rome. Just yesterday, five new regions of this country were declared zone arance, which is the Italian for orange zones. We now have a system that goes from green to yellow to orange to red. <clears throat> red being where the threat of COVID transmission is the highest, orange the next highest, and so on. Uh, in those orange zones, there are various lockdown protocols that apply. Uh, now, the region I live in, Lazio, which is the region where Rome is located, is not yet a zone arance, but we're not far from it. Uh, and so, on both on my side of the Atlantic uh, and yours, uh, we are living through the second wave uh, of the COVID crisis. So, let's begin with the church-state tensions. Uh, as I'm sure everyone here will recall, when the first wave of COVID lockdowns occurred in the spring and summer, it was accompanied by a series of government decrees restricting various forms of activity, particularly those that involved public gatherings. Uh, and among those uh, were religious gatherings, uh, worship services. Uh, and in many parts of the world, again, including where I live here in Italy, by government decree, public celebration in the mass was suspended. Uh, in Italy, that suspension took effect on the 8th of March, and it didn't relax until May 2nd. Uh, and in many other parts of the world, there were similar sorts of periods when public celebration in the mass was uh, essentially prohibited by government decree. Now, in the Catholic world, uh, such decrees, such measures generated tremendous debate, tremendous ferment. Uh, there were some in the Catholic world that found these measures entirely appropriate, that felt that the church ought to be on the front lines of protecting public health, uh, and that it was incumbent upon the church to, share, to make the same sacrifices, to share the same burdens that the rest of society was being asked to make. Others in the Catholic world felt uh, that it was alarming that the church was capitulating to the idea that public worship was inessential. Uh, that is, it, you know, in most societies, there was this distinction between essential public services and those that weren't. Here in Italy, for instance, uh, when the first lockdowns were imposed in early March, Certain things were defined as essential public services. They included supermarkets, pharmacies, and by the way, tobacco shops. Uh, but yet uh, religious worship, uh, praise of the creator was not considered an essential service and therefore it was prohibited. And, and some in the Catholic world felt uh, that it was an extremely dangerous move on the part of the church to capitulate to that. The idea that selling tobacco or selling food or selling pharmaceutical goods was somehow essential, uh, but offering honor and praise and, and, and asking for divine intervention in the midst of a great public crisis was somehow not important. Uh, others are 
argued that if the church capitulated to the idea that going to mass in a physical sense wasn't really that important, then why would people come back when all of this was over? Uh, and, and further, others argued that on the grounds of religious freedom, because of course in most Western societies, constitutions recognize religious freedom, uh, that the government had no business telling the church whether it could or could not celebrate the mass with the faithful. Uh, and so these arguments raged on. The key papal moment I want to give you in all of this is April 28th. And let me give you the, the context for that. As I said, Italy went into lockdown on March 8th. By late April, it was clear that at that stage, uh, the pandemic was easing in Italy. Uh, the RTF, the, the, the RT rate, the rate of transmission, uh, was dropping below the level uh, at which the society was considered infectious. Uh, and so the government of Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte, uh, who, by the way, is a faithful Catholic, um, actually, his, his uncle, Michele, uh, was a Capuchin friar who was a personal assistant to Padre Pio uh, at the great Capuchin shrine of San Giovanni Rotondo. Uh, and to this day, Prime Minister Conte carries a holy card of Padre Pio in his wallet. Uh, he is a great devotee uh, of Padre Pio. But in any event, uh, at that stage, uh, the prime minister was announcing plans for what the Italians called fase due, the, the second phase, uh, which basically meant an easing of the restrictions that had been imposed three months before. Uh, uh, but when he announced that to the nation on April 26th, that was a Sunday evening. Uh, and Prime Minister Conte likes to do these things in video messages that are posted to his Facebook account. Uh, so he laid out his plans in one of those Facebook videos. It said nothing about lifting the suspension for celebration of the mass. Now that enraged uh, a number of Italian bishops that evening the Italian Bishops' Conference, which is known here as CE, or the Conferenza Episcopale Italiana, the, the Italian Bishops' Conference, uh, put out a very testy message uh, suggesting that this was a violation of religious freedom. The next day, which was Monday, April 27, uh, a number of Italian bishops suggested that they were prepared to launch legal challenges, demanding <clears throat> that the Italian government provide public celebration in the mass. That all lasted until uh, roughly 7.02 a.m. Uh, on Tuesday, April 28th. That was Tuesday morning. When Pope Francis began uh, his, uh, his daily mass at the Santa Marta residence on Vatican grounds where he lives, and during the period of the quarantena, the, the lockdown here in Italy, uh, he was live streaming those masses every morning because, of course, at that point, no one could go to mass in a physical sense. Uh, and during that live stream daily mass, he began the mass uh, by talking about the importance of abiding by the restrictions that governments are placing on public activities for the sake of public health. And notably, he called for obedience 
to those restrictions. And that was the key word, obedience. Uh, he said, we, we must practice obedience to the restrictions the governments are placing for our own safety. <clears throat> that absolutely took the wind out of the sails of the Italian bishops. They immediately dropped all of this talk of challenging the government restrictions. Uh, and it set a tone for the Catholic Church all across Europe. Uh, I, I think it is enormously instructive that there are two European nations where court challenges to coronavirus-imposed uh, bans on public worship were actually overturned. Uh, it was France and Germany. And in neither of those two cases were those court challenges brought or supported by the Catholic bishops of those countries. In France, it was a constellation of right-wing political forces and traditionalist Catholics. In Germany, it was actually a Muslim association. In, in both of those cases, challenges went to the high courts of France and Germany, and both of those courts ruled that blanket bans on public religious worship violate constitutional protections of religious worship but the Catholic Church and the bishops were not a party to those challenges. Uh, now, you could argue that that strategy actually worked, at least here in Italy, because one week uh, after the Pope called for obedience to the government's directives, uh, Prime Minister Conte announced a deal with the Italian Bishops' Conference to restore public celebration in the Mass, uh, and now, amid the second wave, there is absolutely no talk whatsoever uh, about resuspending public mass. That's not true of other parts in Europe. Uh, in France, for instance, public celebration of the mass has once again been suspended, at least until December 1st. Once again, the bishops there are not pushing back, but some lay Catholics are. Uh, there are actually various forms of protest among lay Catholics in France, including a group that has launched the hashtag Our Souls Matter, which is, of course, an obvious play in the Black Lives Matter movement in the States. Uh, but the French bishops uh, are not a party to that. Now, that is by way of contrast to the United States, of course, where in the Diocese of Brooklyn, Bishop Nicholas de Marzio, uh, has launched various legal appeals to protest uh, limits on public worship imposed by uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo, who is, of course, himself a Roman Catholic. He son of uh, Mario Cuomo, who was the governor of New York, a one-time presidential candidate, and a somebody who uh, had a large footprint in American Catholic life for a long time. Uh, Bishop DiMarzio filed appeals for a temporary restraining order and an injunction uh, against those limits in lower courts. Those appeals were rejected. So he has taken his appeal to the United States Supreme Court as of last Tuesday. Uh, and we don't know what is going to happen, although some legal observers believe that with the addition of Amy Coney Barrett to the United States Supreme Court, the appeal may actually have some legs. We will see. But in any event, all of this is illustrative of the fact that as we enter this second wave uh, of the coronavirus, the, the question 
of what is appropriate for the church to do in terms of curtailing its normal public and liturgical life. Uh, and what is unjustified capitulation to government decrees, that question is going to create hard choices for bishops and pastors all over the place. Uh, in terms of papal indications, uh, there is no sense whatsoever that Pope Francis has backed away from the position he took on April 28th, which is that the church in general ought to comply with the recommendations in the, the limits uh, that are being suggested by government authorities in order to protect public health. But there is also no indication of any kind that Pope Francis or the Vatican plans to override the judgment of local bishops and local pastors about the best course to set in their own circumstances. All this by way of saying, these issues are not going away. All right, second broad family of issues that COVID creates. How to respond to the economic, social, and political fallout. Uh, and the date, the key papal moment there I want to give you is October 3rd, because on October 3rd, Pope Francis left Rome. It was actually the first time he had left Rome since the coronavirus pandemic erupted. <clears throat> and he traveled to the Italian city of Assisi. Assisi, of course, is the birthplace of St. Francis of Assisi, the namesake of this Pope. Uh, and the Pope went there to sign his new encyclical Fratelli Tutti. Uh, as a footnote, there was, of course, a big argument about the, the title of this encyclical because some people uh, objected uh, that it is not gender inclusive because fertility, fratelli is a masculine term, uh, and they thought maybe it should have been fratelli a sorelli. Uh, you know, of course, the thing of it is the Pope was quoting one of the admonitions of St. Francis to his new Franciscan community, uh, in which St. Francis was saying, there should be no hierarchy in this community perché siamo tutti fratelli. And obviously he was using masculine vocabulary there because everyone in the new Franciscan community was a guy. Uh, but, a, you know, obviously uh, this is intended to apply to everyone. So it's a it's kind of non-issue, but, in any event, in this encyclical letter, uh, Pope Francis offered his x-ray uh, of a sort of COVID-impacted world. Uh, and basically what Pope Francis said was that what the COVID crisis has exposed is the fragility of the entire global system. Um, that the inability of the global community to offer a unified multilateral response to the challenges posed by the COVID crisis uh, is an indication that the system simply isn't working and that it needs to be rethought from the ground up. From that point on, Francis went on to offer any number of prescriptions as to what a, a coherent and effective response to the COVID crisis might look like. Uh, they included greater environmental protection, greater concern for migrants and refugees, uh, a sort of critique 
of neoliberal free market capitalism that would include a greater role for states in, insure, in ensuring that the economic system works to the benefit of the most vulnerable uh, in a given society, uh, and on and on. Um, in other words, if you want the Magna Carta uh, of Pope Francis's vision for what a, a proper public policy response to the COVID crisis would look like, uh, you can find it in the encyclical Fratelli Tutti. Now, uh, obviously, you know, not everyone inside or outside the Catholic world would necessarily agree uh, with all of the policy prescriptions there. Uh, but from a Catholic point of view, I think the really interesting question is how effective is Pope Francis and the team around him going to be in promoting the vision embedded in this encyclical? Uh, because, you know, it is one thing to sketch a vision uh, for greater justice, inclusiveness, and fraternity uh, in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. It is another thing to do the kind of heavy lifting necessary to translate that vision into reality. How effective are they going to be? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, that's going to be the fascinating story track. For, for in the weeks and months and years to come. But I will say this, that one of the things that makes it particularly interesting uh, is the results of the 2020 elections uh, in the United States. Uh, it now seems quite clear uh, that former Vice President Joe Biden has won. Uh, he is now the president-elect. Uh, and although President Trump has filed various legal challenges to these results, those that have not yet been rejected by courts do not seem uh, to have uh, the capacity to overturn that result. Uh, and so we're going to have a new president in the United States. Joe Biden is not only the, uh, the second Roman Catholic president uh, in the United States, uh, but in some ways he owes his election to the Catholic vote in America. Um, because although exit polls will, are all over the map and we're gonna have to wait a while to get a reliable, reliable number, uh, you know, at this point, the most, uh, probably the most reliable number we have comes from the AP vote cast, which had the Catholic vote at 50% Trump, 49% Biden. Now, if that's true, that's about a six to 8% drop uh, in Trump's Catholic support from 2016. Uh, and that came primarily from the white Catholic vote. Actually, his support among Latino Catholics edged up a little bit. Uh, and the, the black Catholic vote was more or less where it was last time. So that difference uh, is largely in terms of white Catholic voters. Uh, and they're mostly blue collar white Catholic voters. And where, ladies and gentlemen, are blue collar white Catholic voters disproportionately concentrated? Well, they are in Michigan, they're in Wisconsin, and they're in Pennsylvania. That is those Rust Belt states that this time around made the difference for Joe, for Joe Biden. So not only is he coming into office as a Roman Catholic himself, he is also coming into office in a certain sense, owing his victory to those white Catholic voters. Uh, that ought to mean that he is particularly predisposed to take Catholic concerns seriously. Uh, and he takes office at a time when there is a Pope whose own vision of the world 
is in many significant respects closer to Biden's than Trump's. So, uh, you know, as we wait to see whether the Pope's vision of a post-COVID world as outlined in Fratelli Tutti takes effect, uh, it is happening at a time when there is a new administration in the United States that, that may be inclined to take that prescription more seriously uh, than the one that preceded it. Uh, you know, the United States is the world's most important hard power in terms of economic and military might. The Vatican arguably is the world's most important soft power uh, in terms of moral and spiritual authority. It, it is going to be very interesting to see whether those two powers align uh, to make a difference as we go forward. Uh, all right, finally, the, the pastoral dimension uh, of the COVID crisis. Um, and here are the key papal moment I want to give you is March 27th, 2020. That was when Pope Francis delivered an extraordinary Urbi et Orbi blessing from St. Peter's Square. Now, Urbi et Orbi is a Latin phrase. It means to the city and to the world. Uh, and it is a blessing the Pope typically gives uh, only on a couple of occasions. One is Christmas uh, and the other is Easter. Uh, and these are traditional blessings that are given all the time. Uh, outside uh, of those two holidays, it is extremely rare for, a, for an Orbi at Orbi blessing to be delivered. But Pope Francis decided on that date, March 27th, that it was in order because of the shock to the world that had been delivered by the coronavirus pandemic. <clears throat> I don't know if you watched the Irby last night. Ratings numbers tell us that tens of millions of people all around the world did. But I know what it was like here in Italy and here in Rome. That night, March 27th, it was a Friday night. Uh, it happened to be a cold and rainy night. Pope Francis, by himself, walked into what was essentially an empty St. Peter's Square. And he ascended the stairs that lead to the, the kind of uh, the, the platform um, just below the main entrance to the Basilica. You know, if you're Catholic at all, and particularly if you're in Rome, you are accustomed to seeing St. Peter's Square full when the Pope is there. You're, you're accustomed to seeing it groaning with humanity. That night it was empty. It was the Pope by himself. And he stood there on a dark Roman night with the rain falling. And the only sound, because normally you hear the cheering and the roaring of the crowd. There was none of that. The only sound you could hear were the occasional ambulances that would drive by St. Peter's Square, carrying coronavirus patients to ICU units in various Roman hospitals. And he talked about the anguish that everyone felt. Uh, the, the heart sickness that everyone felt, the fear that everyone felt. And he appealed 
filled to the better angels of our nature. He asked that that fear and not get the better of us. And he memorably said that night that if there is anything, the coronavirus, same boat. We are all in this together and we need to recover a sense of solidarity or this pandemic will get the better of us. Now, you know, I don't know how that played anywhere else, but I, I know that the next day, Aldo Grassi, who is the leading television critic in Italy, he's like the Marshall McLuhan of Italy, uh, had a piece in Corriere della Sera, which is like the, the New York Times of Italy, in which he talked about how the Pope that night had captured the mood, he had captured the soul of the nation. And he said that that night, a hundred years from now, will be burned into Italian minds as the iconic moment of the coronavirus. Now, after that night, the Catholic Church here in Italy continued its engagement in delivering pastoral care. Uh, as of our talking here tonight, there are 116 priests here in Italy who have died from the coronavirus largely because they refuse to abandon pastoral care of their people. My point is this, that the coronavirus has delivered a, a, a massive shock uh, across the world. It has left people insecure. It has left people afraid. It has left many people wondering where God is. That night on March 27th, Pope Francis managed through through imagination to find a way to make the church present in the most intimate and consoling way possible to a vast swath of humanity. And going forward, the church from, from here on out in the midst of the second surge of the coronavirus, all of us, bishops, priests, religious, lay people, on a smaller scale, we are going to face the same challenge of finding a way to make God's loving consolation present to people who are scared. And I'm, I'm, there is no cookie cutter formula for that. There is no blueprint formula for that. But I think watching and learning from the Pope's delivery that evening of March 27th, uh, that is an extremely promising point of departure. Uh, all right, so that's my presentation. We have talked about church state and religious freedom issues. We have talked about the economic, social, and political fallout of the COVID crisis. Uh, and we have talked about the challenges of pastoral care uh, in this era. Uh, at this point, uh, I am happy to open myself up to questions about any or all of those points uh, or anything else uh, that may be of concern and interest to you at the moment. Thank you for listening. Thank you, John. Um, and the questions are rolling in here, so let me, uh, let me get started. Um, We've heard about the European and American response to COVID restrictions. Uh, what can you tell us about the Asian, African, and or Australian church and how they responded to COVID restrictions imposed by the governments? 
Well, in Australia, the church followed largely the European model, which is broad compliance with the, the restrictions indicated by the government. Uh, in Asia, the situation has been very different because there has been relatively little attempt to restrict public worship. Um, the, the one outlying example I can think of is uh, in India, where the government of Prime Minister Modi initially uh, avoided uh, any kind of COVID-related lockdowns, but then imposed a very sweeping set of lockdowns, which included restrictions on worship. Uh, but that didn't last very long. I mean, frankly, by the time the church could have gotten around uh, to mounting a response to that, it, it was over. Uh, in Africa, Africa has largely been spared the most severe form of the COVID crisis. So uh, I'm not aware of an African government outside of South Africa uh, that has attempted to impose uh, a sort of blanket ban on public worship. Were such a thing to be attempted, however, uh, I would suspect that the church in Africa would be more robust in resisting it. Uh, one of the glories of Africa, and I, I don't mean to be romantic about this, I mean, I think Africa has its problems like every place else, but one of the glories of Africa uh, is that, generally speaking, it is a principle accepted uh, by the state as well as by the church, um, that public worship is indeed an essential public service. I mean, I think in, you know, I, I think of Nigeria, if Nigeria were to attempt to impose a suspension of public worship, there would quite literally be blood in the streets. Um, so we, we haven't really seen that. And so the African bishops really haven't had to reckon with it. I, you know, what I think in general is going on here uh, is that uh, bishops are faced with a kind of Faustian choice. Like on the one hand, they don't want to be seen as cavalierly irresponsible when it comes to public health. Uh, and on the other hand, they certainly don't want to be seen as capitulating to the idea that worship is kind of a public worship is a kind of optional accessory that can be dispensed with, uh, uh, you know, uh, at a whim. Uh, and uh, I, I think that has to be negotiated place by place and circumstance by circumstance. Uh, I, I will say uh, that watching all this play out here in Italy, uh, I, I think there was a certain degree of sort of cunning uh, in the way that Francis backed the Conte government when it desperately needed it. Uh, and what that produced was a, a kind of immediate loosening up of these restrictions and an unwillingness to impose them again when the crisis represented itself. Now, that may well have to do with unique Italian circumstances that are not necessarily, you know, exportable uh, in other parts of the world. Um, but I think what Francis understood is that if the church first convinces people that it's not trying to invoke privilege. Uh, it, it's not trying to say that we should be exempt from the same sacrifices that everybody else is making. But on the contrary, we are willing to do whatever we have to do to keep people safe uh, and, and to respect the, the results 
uh, <clears throat> of credible public health officials, then when governments have to get around to evaluating what they're going to permit and what they're not, they're going to be much more sympathetic than the church than if we looked like, if we looked arrogant and uh, in insisting on some kind of special treatment at the start of the game, right? And, and however that applies in various circumstances, I think there is some wisdom to that instinct. Let me ask this. Um, there's been a, um, a fair amount of conversation uh, here among people in doing pastoral work about what will happen once um, the um, restrictions are lift on public worship are lifted. And people, many, many people will not have been to mass um, or been to church uh, for many, many months. There is a fear that uh, maybe uh, the number of people coming and even participating in church life and certainly coming to mass may uh, decrease even substantially um, as a result of that. Is anybody talking about that in the, uh, among the top leaders of the church? Is that just sort of an American problem or what do you, what do you think? No, no, no. I, the, the, I mean, there are many things that are a uniquely American problem, Tim, but I, I don't think this is one of them. Uh, this is certainly something that has been a topic of intense conversation, for instance, here in Italy. Now, what I can report is, uh, as I said, mass was suspended here from the 8th of March to the 2nd of May. Uh, once that suspension was lifted, I want to point out the Italian bishops set aside the obligation of Sunday mass attendance, right? Saying, you know, everybody has to decide for themselves whether given their circumstances, this is a prudent choice or not. Um, but even in the absence of the obligation, what the early data tells us uh, is that mass attendance is basically the same as it was before. Um, now, you know, I don't know how that's gonna play other places. You know, the, the arguments here are on the one side, if, we have trained people for several months that they don't have to go to Sunday mass, then once they can again, uh, some share of them is not going to, right? Which would be a projection for lower numbers. Now, the other argument uh, is that what we will do, what, what has been uh, created uh, by these lockdowns uh, is what in tradition we would talk about as Eucharistic hunger. Um, and that actually, uh, you know, maybe more people will come out because they haven't been able to, like even if they had wanted to, they wouldn't, wouldn't have been able to. Uh, and so once it's possible again, they will want to avail themselves of it. You know, what I did at, when the lockdown first started here in Italy uh, is I, I reread then Cardinal Ratzinger's book, who, who of course later became Pope Benedict XVI. Uh, you know, I reread his book on the Eucharist, and, and one of the things he talked about, how St. Augustine, towards the end of his life, voluntarily withheld himself from the Eucharist, that is, he would not receive the Eucharist, because Augustine's idea was that when he died uh, and was able to encounter the Lord face to face, he wanted to be so hungry for that presence, right? Uh, that, that he would be in the best possible space to appreciate the magnitude 
uh, of the gift that had been given to him. And, and Ratzinger's conclusion was, you know, maybe from time to time, it would be a good idea for all of us to experience a Eucharistic fast so that at the end of those fasts, we would no longer be receiving the Eucharist out of routine, uh, but out of genuine gratitude and joy. You know, I, I, I don't know how this is going to play out, but uh, all I can say uh, is that I think there are, this is a classic case of two competing values. You know, one value is we have to understand that physical reception in the Eucharist, while it is, as the Second Vatican Council says, the source and summit of Christian life, um, it is also inessential in the sense that uh, our ability to receive the grace of a loving God, if, if for whatever reason circumstances conspire to make physical reception of the Eucharist possible, that doesn't mean we can't receive the grace that flows from the sacrament, right? Um, and in circumstances where the greater good, the common good, and in particular public health requires it, uh, then we have to be willing to accept that. On the other hand, uh, I am also conscious uh, that the Catholic Church is, by definition, a communitarian tradition. We, you know, we are not a do-it-yourself, uh, you know, religion. Um, you know, we believe in the community, and when the community can't come together to worship and receive the sacrament, something essential to Catholicism has been stripped away. Uh, and, and so I think there is a tension there uh, that is absolutely inevitable. However, what I would also say is that I don't think the decision-making about this fundamentally ought to be driven by concerns market share. I mean, we can sit around and speculate as much as we want, and it is interesting and important to talk about whether the numbers in terms of mass attendance will be higher or lower post-COVID lockdowns. But fundamentally, that's not the important issue, right? The important question is, what does the gospel demand of us uh, in this particular moment? I think as long as we keep our eyes on that, the rest of it will take care of itself. Mm -hmm. um, you brought up Fratelli Tutti uh, in the context of COVID-19 in a post-COVID-19 world. Given that the Vatican has designated May 2020 to May 2021 as a jubilee year for Laudato Si, really foregrounding that, and then Fratelli Tutti comes in the picture. How do you see the relationship between the two of those? Is Fratelli Tutti a, a sort of a social counterpart to Laudato Si, or, or how would you put that together? Well, I think Laudato Si was a deep dive on a particular issue, which is the care of creation. Uh, I think Fratelli Tutti was the Pope's broad global vision. I mean, in other words, if you want a synthesis of the social, economic, political themes of the Francis Papacy, uh, that's what Fratelli Tutti was intended to deliver. Uh, now, in terms of the Jubilee year and all of that, look, uh, I think Pope Francis, if you read Fratelli Tutti, one of the points he is crystal clear on uh, is that if the coronavirus pandemic should have taught us anything, it is that we, can, we cannot 
simply go back to the status quo ante. I mean, let's assume we get a vaccine and infection rates become negligible and this is basically over. Okay, you know, his point is that you, you cannot simply go back to the world as it existed before the coronavirus, because what the coronavirus has taught us is that that world was unsustainable. And one of the ways in which it is unsustainable in Pope Francis's vision of things uh, is its treatment of creation, its treatment of the environment. Uh, and so I, I think this is, and of course, <clears throat> let us be clear that Waldato C, even though it has been described as a kind of green encyclical, right? Uh, and the Pope baptizing uh, the environmental movement, it, it's broader than that. I mean, it, it's really an argument for what Francis describes as an integral ecology in which the defense of the environment and the defense of human dignity are seen as two sides of the same coin. <clears throat> and so I think this is all part of the Pope's strategy for recovery from the coronavirus. <clears throat> and I think, you know, the hope, and, and by the way, this is the same hope that Pope Benedict XVI had. I mean, Pope Benedict, who for a time, you, you might remember, was known as the Green Pope. I mean, Benedict took all kinds of steps, including <coughs> installing solar panels on top of the Paul VI audience hall and uh, becoming the first carbon neutral state in Europe by replanting a swath of a forest in Hungary. Benedict felt that the environmental movement was the first step towards the recovery of a natural law tradition in which people would believe, <clears throat> well, if there are limits built into nature on our mistreatment of the environment, then maybe there are also limits built into nature on our mistreatment of the human person and of the economy. <clears throat> and I think Francis in a different key uh, is of the same mind. Uh, and so I think this decision to try to highlight Lalato C uh, is part of it is of a piece with his broader, broader prescription for recovery from the pandemic, which is <coughs> to, to understand that we need to put the human person and the human community at the center of global systems rather than special interests. You know, we'll see where that goes. I don't know. Uh, but I do think it is very interesting, the fact that <laughs> this is all happening at the same time Biden has been elected in America. I mean, I am, I am reminded that when Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980, right, John Paul had been pope for two years, uh, and the two men found common ground uh, on opposition to the evil empire, right, the Soviet system, and together they helped bring it down. <clears throat> well, today we have a Pope who is similarly watching a new American president take office. They are both facing a similar global threat, which is not nuclear annihilation anymore, but it's the coronavirus pandemic. They both share a kind of similar worldview in the way that Reagan and John Paul did. Uh, and I am fascinated to see whether there will be a similar kind of intersection between the world's most important hard power and the world's most important soft power to engage this global crisis. 
Uh, I don't know whether it's going to happen, but I think the mere possibility of it invests the next few years with a kind of extraordinary drama. Um, and I'm just going to be fascinated to see how it plays out. Let me, I have a, a question here which would move us from, from high politics to something very specific, but one on which um, there are um, uh, strongly held views and, and feelings, I guess I would say. Um, what is the, the Vatican's perspective, uh, other bishops' perspective on the question of individuals receiving communion on the tongue? Um, do they see um, uh, uh, these individuals as putting others at unreasonable risk? Well, I mean, the Vatican has not issued any kind of binding guidance on this question. And so therefore, it is uh, what in the tradition we would talk about as an open question, right? Uh, one in which the Vatican has not definitively resolved. Uh, if you want to talk about the Vatican's actual practice, um, you know, I have been to several liturgies at the Vatican, uh, including papal liturgies, since the coronavirus pandemic erupted. Uh, and in all of them, there was an insistence that communion could only be distributed in the hand. Um, and those are also the guidelines that the Italian bishops have adopted with Vatican support. Um, so, you know, what I can say uh, is that I think in general, uh, obviously Pope Francis and his advisors of the Vatican think that reverence for the Eucharist uh, is extraordinarily important. Uh, but they also believe that in an era in which transmission of a deadly disease uh, is sometimes facilitated uh, by oral contact, uh, that reception of the Eucharist in the hand is an appropriate pastoral precaution. Um, but as I say, they have not decreed that. Uh, and so if there are pastors or bishops in various parts of the world who believe that for whatever reason, uh, it is important to continue to, to facilitate, even promote, uh, reception of the Eucharist on the tongue, they're not going to tell them no, uh, but but certainly their own practice uh, would suggest a different conclusion. Mm -hmm. um, here's a question really about a Catholic vision. It's quite broad. Um, to what extent have you seen this pandemic changing Catholics' perspective on death, mortality, the limits of human control of the world? And how have Catholic leaders addressed these issues? Well, I mean, I think that probably is a question that has to be answered through the lens of every individual Catholic who has experienced this crisis. But, uh, you know, in general, what I can say uh, is that, uh, and of course, my perspective is largely here in Italy and here in Rome. Um, you know, what I can say is two things. One, I have friends here in Italy who have spent their entire lives being determined, bitter, anti-clericals, right? You know, who, who, who sort of grew up cheek by jowl with what they thought of as a kind of theocracy and who have resented it. 
um, and who have therefore uh, been very opposed to anything they see as government coddling of the church and so on. Who nevertheless, uh, in the midst of this crisis, have found themselves turning to, to the resources the church has to offer, you know, who, who, are, who are turning to Father so-and-so, who they may not like the church in quotes, but Padre Nicolo is like a guy they love. Um, and in the midst of this crisis, they want him close to him, you know, they, they want to be near him. And, and I think in that sense, I think the specter of mortality has created an evangelical opportunity for the church that I'm not sure we have fully understood uh, and I'm not sure we have fully responded to. Uh, I think there is a vast swath of the population out there that is beyond right now arguing over whether the Catholic Church does or does not ordain women or what its record on the sex abuse crisis is. I mean, those, those things are legitimate questions, right? And people are gonna continue to have them. But like at this moment, they just wanna know, is there a God who loves me? And like, if I get this disease and I die, what's gonna happen to me? And I think that has created a hunger and I have seen that hunger play itself out. Um, and, you know, what I, what I wonder uh, is whether the church is, well, I mean, it, it sort of depends, right? Some are and some aren't. But I, I think in the main, the church has caught itself unprepared uh, for that kind of hunger and to know how to respond to it. That's why I mentioned the moment of that Irby at Orby address, March 27th. I mean, look, right across the street from us here in Rome, our next door neighbor is the real estate agent who, who was involved in the deal that got us into the apartment we presently live in. He was actually on the other side. He was the owner's guy. And he was a tough negotiator. He's a smart guy. Um, but he, he's also a really good guy. He has a beautiful family. We've met his kid. They are great people. <clears throat> and as I say, he lives like right across the street. And he is also, he is uh, politically, historically, he has been an Italian communist. He is extremely anti-clerical in his thinking. But he knows I cover the Vatican. He knows my deal. Uh, and in the early stages of this crisis, he wrote to me because he said that an aunt of his who was in her 60s or 70s, who lives up north here in Italy, uh, you know, had contracted the coronavirus and he was devastated. And, and she was, you know, desperate and lost. Uh, and so was he. And he wanted to know if I could recommend a priest for him to talk to. And, and, and what this tells me uh, is that we are in one of those rare moments that come along from time to time uh, in which people are willing to set aside their normal prejudices, whatever their politics may be, all of that stuff. <clears throat> and they really want to know, is God there for them? 
Uh, and is there is there love? Is there compassion? Is there mercy for them? Um, and I, I, I guess what I think uh, is that we've got to be far more focused on responding to that popular hunger uh, and far less concerned about the kind of institutional things that normally preoccupy us, including, by the way, whether mass attendance is going up or down. Uh, that's something that'll sort itself out. Um, but what we've got to be aware of is that there is a moment unfolding right now in which people really need us. They really want us to be present to them and we have to have the verve and the imagination to do that. Well, let me uh, turn to something that's on, I, I think everybody's mind here in the United States at the moment, um, the McCarrick Report. And do you believe that pushback from the McCarrick Report will curtail Pope Francis and his team's ability to work with government leaders to implement some kind of general COVID policy reforms, such as he suggests in Fratelli 2D? No, on the contrary. I mean, I, I think, if anything, the McCarrick Report will significantly enhance Pope Francis's credibility, because let us remember, this is not a, a government commission that was impaneled to investigate the Catholic Church. This is not a grand jury. This is not a special prosecutor. <clears throat> this is a report that the Vatican itself commissioned, uh, and it is extraordinary. Like, I'm not claiming it's perfect, and I know there is, you know, there is discussion about various aspects of it, but ladies and gentlemen, for the first time in history, the, the, the curtain has been lifted. I mean, we get the full text of the most super secret letters in the church written by cardinals to the Vatican about who ought to get what bishop's job. You know, uh, we get the direct, unfiltered, firsthand testimony uh, of, of various players uh, in the McCarrick story, including McCarrick's victims. There were 90 interviews conducted for this report. I think this report is the most important moment in the history of the papacy, quite honestly, since September 20th, 1870. Now, what happened on that date? On September 20th, the armies of the new Italian Republic penetrated the Porta Pia here in Rome, which is one of the traditional entrances to the city. Uh, and that marked the end of the Papal States. It marked the, in, the end of the papacy as a temporal power. From that point forward, it had to transition to being an exclusively spiritual and moral power because it no longer controlled any territory, it no longer had an economy, it no longer had an army, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what were the pillars? What were the new sources of power that the papacy relied on after 1870? They were two, secrecy and sovereignty. Secrecy meant we're not gonna tell you what's going on behind the scenes and sovereignty meant we don't have to because, you know, we're a sovereign state. What, what this report represents is a monumental break with both of those principles. Uh, and from here on out, it will be, in, from, from now till the end of time, 
it will be impossible for the Vatican to explain why it doesn't come clean on anything else. So if there is some new scandal, some new meltdown, some new failure, if they don't do something like the McCarrick report, then the question is going to be why not and what are you trying to hide? This is a precedent they simply cannot walk back. Uh, and I think what, I mean, the face value takeaway uh, that most players on the global stage will have uh, is that this is an extraordinary uh, act of disclosure. Uh, and on that basis, uh, I think it would enhance the credibility uh, of the Vatican and make it more effective uh, in its attempt to carve out partnerships with various forces on the global stage. Now, I mean, that said, I, you know, I don't think that the, the Pope's ability to get the vision in Fratelli Tutti uh, into reality is going to rise or fall on the McCarrick Report. I, I think that has much more to do with the Vatican's ability, its diplomatic ability, to, to make effective partnerships uh, with various global actors uh, and to try to find ways to achieve the ends that are described in that document. Uh, but if you're asking, what is the impact of the McCarrick report on that? I would say hugely, uh, it helps a lot more than it hurts. Um, one of the things that you have written um, and spoken a lot and very movingly about uh, is this whole phenomenon of um, anti-Christian persecution. Um, what do you think the pandemic um, as a, just a, a major world event that's come down on us, uh, what effect might that have? Could it uh, lead to greater solidarity? Could it lead to scapegoating? Does it change the, the dynamic in some way in this very important issue? Well, I think the main effect of the pandemic is that it has blotted anti-Christian persecution out of the sky as an issue. You know, I mean, over the last 12 months, uh, you know, there have been tens of thousands of Christians in Nigeria who have lost their lives due to various kinds of anti-Christian attacks. Uh, there have been Christians in Eritrea, Christians in North Korea, uh, Christians in other parts of the world who have gone to their deaths in total obscurity because nobody is paying attention. Uh, and, you know, I mean, it's not anti-Christian persecution, of course. There are lots of other pressing global issues that have fallen by the wayside amidst the, the coronavirus pandemic. Um, but I, I think that's uh, the anti-Christian persecution is one of the casualties uh, in terms of global concern. Uh, and... Look, I mean, the reason I got into the issue of Christian persecution is because I was convinced that it was, it was not getting nearly the attention it deserved because it fell into the ideological blind spot of Western societies, including the United States. I mean, for American conservatives, most of the victims of anti-Christian persecution are simply too foreign to be a great concern. I mean, most of them are in Africa and they're in the Middle East and they're in Asia. Uh, many of them are women and they are people of color. Uh, and you know what I mean? It's, it's just not on, it's not high on the to-do list. 
For liberals, of course, the fact they are Christians define them as not being of great concern uh, because liberals are accustomed to thinking of Christianity as a socially dominant institution that has too much power and prestige anyway. Uh, and so they're not inclined uh, to feel a great deal of sympathy. Uh, and my feeling was, uh, look, uh, that's not fair, right? Uh, the, the truth of it is anti-Christian persecution deserves to be a transcendent human rights issue of our time. To me, uh, it is what concern for, for Jews was in the 70s, and it's what the anti-apartheid struggle was in the 80s. It's the litmus test for whether you're on the side of the angels or you're not. Uh, and, uh, you know, my, my concern uh, is that not only because of the coronavirus, but also because all of the attention to the American elections and all of the other well-known distractions that we are familiar with, uh, it's kind of faded from public view, but it is not going away. Uh, and my, my only hope uh, is that as we go forward, if we realize that the premise of a post-COVID world has to be a greater sense of fraternity, has to be a greater sense that, to quote Pope Francis, we're all in the same boat, then people who are the victims of discrimination and hostility, no matter what the motive, deserve our compassion and deserve our solidarity. And the truth of it is, statistically, Christians are more likely in this world to be the victims uh, of that kind of prejudice and violence than virtually any other constituency we can think of. Uh, and so my hope uh, is that as we go forward and perhaps as some of the dust settles from the election, as some of the hysteria about other things begins to subside, uh, we can begin naming the other great humanistic and human rights challenges the world faces. And as we do so, uh, I would argue that anti-Christian persecution deserves a special pride of place. Um, let's have one final question. Um, you've uh, spent your working life um, in communications, broadly speaking, um, uh, moved into virtual communications from print and so on. Um, what do you think about the role of the church in virtual communication and media during these times and maybe um, going into the future? Um, uh, are, are we seeing you know, new use of media, new use of communication that is happening now that is going to go into the future? What, what, what do you see about this trend? I frankly hope the church makes less use of media going forward. Um, here's the thing, I'm a media professional, right? Uh, I mean, I'm basically a reporter. I cover the Catholic Church and I you know, broadcast and transmit the fruits of my labor through media. So I obviously think there is value to it, but uh, I also think that in the 21st century world, for the most part, the media, and by that I mean both new media so like social media, blogs, et cetera, uh, and also old media, 
meaning, you know, the traditional outlets like television networks, print sources, and so on. For the most part, we have become toxic. Uh, you know, like we have become in a, in a deeply polarized time, we have become the agents of that polarization. Uh, and we believe for the most part that taking sides and feeding the bias of our audience is the only practical business model. Uh, and in that sense, we have become not only complicit, but we have become instruments of a deeply tribalized, hostile, acerbic, and uncivil public atmosphere. Uh, and I think it is a deep mistake sometimes for the church to believe that it has to survive and it has to thrive in that atmosphere. I think instead the church ought to be challenging that atmosphere, ought to be finding ways to show that a different way of relating with people and a different way uh, of handling disagreement is possible. Um, now, there, you know, there are good examples of people who actually do that for the church uh, in the social media sphere, but for the main, look, I think it is a mistake to think that technology is value neutral. It isn't. Um, and I think social media in particular creates a culture in which distance from people, that is the fact that you don't have to physically interact with the people you're engaging with, um, and also restrictions on how long you know, your messages can be and so on, uh, facilitates a kind of zinger and put down and snarky uh, culture uh, that is just absolutely toxic. Um, and what I'm looking for from the church, quite honestly, is to find creative ways to create spaces in which we can detox from all of that, where we don't have to relate to others that way. Um, and I think it, it's a mistake, therefore, to think that the church has to come up with more clever tweets or better Facebook posts, uh, or whatever, you know, better Instagram posts. Uh, you know, I, I think what we have to show is that that, that doesn't have to be the way it is. Uh, that, you know, there are alternative ways uh, of engaging other people um, that are more human and more charitable and more generous and more real. Uh, and I think if the church does that, Incredibly, um, then those of us in the media who are trying to resist the predominant ethos of the moment would be deeply grateful. Well, John, thank you so much um, for your perspectives, uh, for the lively Q&A, um, and thanks also to our audience. Thank you again for joining in this conversation, and have a good evening.